I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Just before we start today's show, uh, Mid-Atlantic listeners, I'd like to implore you to go over to our new YouTube channel. Yes, you've heard it. We finally are putting our shows up on YouTube. Quite simply, go to YouTube, search for Mid-Atlantic Podcast to subscribe to our channel. It's incredibly important that you do so for the sake of the algorithm. Some jiggery poke, which I don't quite understand, but you can watch all the episodes there. And please, for the love of all things holy, please subscribe to the channel because it really will help me out. Now, plus, for an exclusive experience, visit royfield.com and sign up to our newsletter. Now, this will give you access to the live podcast recordings on Zoom, where if you are in the audience, you can engage and ask questions with our expert guests. So join us on this journey of exploration and understanding of the world of politics in the US, in the UK and globally. Subscribe and sign up today. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Ladies and gentlemen, please remain standing for the singing of our national anthem. The United Kingdom is a great country. Never, never been a good bet to bet against America. Hi, hello, welcome, I'm Royfield Brown. And it's that weird time of year where you don't know, is it Wednesday, is it Saturday, or is it Tuesday? It's the weird time between Christmas and New Year's Day. Now, because of that, we're going to do an end-of-year show. So today I'm joined by, drumroll, Denise Hamilton in Houston, in Texas, Cora Bernard in Manchester in England, Tanya Oldtrade, who's in London, and Z Cohen Sanchez, who's in Nevada. What we're going to do in this special episode, we're going to reflect on some of the events that have not only defined the year, but also resonated with our panellists. We'll be exploring the devastating Maui wildfires, a natural disaster which left an indelible mark on both the environment and the communities of Hawaii. We'll delve into the historic coronation of King Charles III, a momentous event that marked a new era for the British monarchy. And we can't overlook the phenomena known as the Keithley effect. And then lastly, we're going to look at the Titan submersible, which disappeared, adding another layer of mythos to the tragedy that was the sinking of the Titanic 100 plus years ago. These are just four stories which have really touched our panellists. And I'm going to start with you, Z. Why did you decide to go for the Maui wildfires? Yeah, we've had a lot of natural disasters happen this year, but obviously in the last 20, 30 years that are getting progressively worse. But the most devastating, I think, about the Maui wildfires was that the fact that it was in a place that is not subject to having these type of natural disasters. Two was the how disastrous it was. It was in- incredibly disastrous. And then three was that what happened in the aftermath of uh, that disaster. So the misplacement or the displace of working class and lower class people, um, what it did to the tourist industry out there, um, how the real estate market was basically being pariahs on. I mean, the fires weren't even out yet when they were getting calls about purchasing their properties. And 
Yeah. And since then, just as of September, we've had $23 billion worth of damage from climate change related disasters. Yeah, definitely a lot to unpack. But it was, I think, one of the most impactful stories of the year. The wildfires began on August the 8th and 98 people lost their lives. The, the causes were a combination of down power lines, a severe drought, effects of El Nino. Obviously, this has all been exacerbated by by climate change. We saw those fires in Europe, in Greece, didn't we, this year? We saw the unusual fires in even in Canada. Do you think with this level of natural disasters that actually we are really now getting behind the fact that we, not only that the climate is changing, but that we need to do something about it. I think Democrats here are. That's sort of part of the problem is that we have so many Republicans in power where we're still debating if climate change even exists. And that that I think is the danger that we face moving forward is that it's very difficult to do something about an issue that people are denying is even an issue. So yeah, it is. It's absolutely getting progressively worse. We knew this We've known this for a long time, just with, I think it really came to the forefront of politics back when, what is that gentleman's name that ran in 2000, Al Gore, when he ran for president, his, almost his entire platform was on the climate crisis. And even back then, which has been, what, almost 25 years ago, most Democrats at that point had said, you're right. But still, 25 years later, we're still seeing Republicans that are denying that climate change is even real. Corey and Tonya. Obviously, we've had no evidence of climate change in the UK at all, have we, in the last few years? We have had ample evidence of, of climate change in the UK. Thankfully, not as extreme as what's happening elsewhere. In terms of wildfires, we have seen extreme temperatures rise. And we've seen our governments continue doing their zigzag approach towards it. So sometimes blowing hot and sometimes blowing cold. Mm. And it's one of the things which... I must be, I'm somewhat disappointed about this Conservative government because, to your point, Tonya, they have exactly zigzagged, haven't they? Haven't they now said that they're going to roll back on some of the pledges that it's made in terms of, of climate change prevention for the future? Yeah, they are absolutely causing themselves absolute mayhem, rolling back on some of the pledges and wanting to extend them into the future shortening and reducing investment into some of the most sustainable initiatives that we have that will mitigate the impacts of climate change and trying to pu push those investments into things that will actually worsen the scenario for us. We know that we've got a prime minister right now who probably doesn't appear like he believes in the climate urgency. He flies around multiple times in helicopters. He doesn't believe in sustainable transports. Um, nothing he says or does is in line with some of the pledges that have been made in the past. And he's definitely one to roll those things back, trying to put the economy as an excuse for it. See, I want to come back to you because uh, the media coverage of the fires was pretty extensive. And specifically, there was a local media outlet called the Hollywood Civil Beat, which highlighted some of the broad impact of fires. And also some of the things which you hinted at, the kind of injustice in terms of how local people were treated. Can you just give us a little bit more detail uh, about that? Because one of the kind of concepts which has come out of the wildfires is this concept of climate gentrification. So again, just set us back to exactly what happened in that aftermath when people were devastated with the loss of their homes. Hawaii has had astronomical increase in their housing market in the last 30 years. And so a lot of these folks, a lot of folks that are native Hawaiians, particularly who have been there for generations, those homes were purchased sometimes even up to 100 years ago, back when things were actually affordable and working in middle class and even lower class people could afford homes. Now, Hawaii has been, especially where it happened, is one of the top tourist spots in the world. And there's a lot of controversy around how that happened, because essentially, as you had mentioned, the fires happened in August, which is the middle of the summer in Hawaii. They the tourism was out outrageous at that time in terms of how many people were coming into town. And so a lot of these folks that are working class folks that work at the the local hotels and the tourist spots were torn between, should we tell people to stop coming here? And <laughs> do we want to stop working? 
and then also having to deal with the loss of their homes. And as I had, you know, previously touched on a little bit was not just the fact that they've lost their homes, but also the fact that there's nowhere else for them to go locally. So now having to find a place outside of where their whole like generations of their family are from, and then also being in this situation where now they have real estate agents calling them, offering them disgusting deals, like telling them that they'll basically purchase their home for next to nothing just because the house isn't available anymore. Yeah, there's a lot of injustice there. And I think we're still to, to see where those people end up. But I think most of them will unfortunately have to move out. Denise, how has climate change kind of affected things in Texas? I remember, I don't know if it was last Christmas before, but it, it snowed in the majority of, of the state. So apart from that kind of newsworthy event, made on a more subtle level, how have you noticed the effects of climate change in the Lone Star State? I, I have a slightly different perspective on it because obviously Houston is the energy capital of the world. Uh, but we have all of the major energy companies here, oil and gas, um, solar, like all of it is being developed here. And to watch the the dissonance, the struggle of how do you how do you address an industry that is the lifeblood of your community, of your state, that you also know is causing this kind of damage? And how do you reconcile that? So in a lot of ways, it's been strange because a lot of energy companies are at the front. They're the front line of figuring out more efficient ways to address climate. And they don't always get the credit for that, which and I'm not saying like they need to be babied. They are, at, they're the polluters of our time, right? But I think that it's this weird thing that the people who are best equipped to address the problem have to have the tools and the will to uh, address the problem. So we are always having conversations that are rife with conflict about is climate change real, which we shouldn't still be talking about anymore. It's real. It is a, it's, it's act, an actual thing. But then also, what are we prepared to give up? Because isn't that where we really are? We have to get to a space that we're ready to give things up, give up certain elements of our quality of life in order to create a more sustainable future. And that's where the rubber hits the road in the conversations that we have in Texas. Really great perspective. And as soon as he started speaking, of course, I thought, crumbs, that's where they drill all the oil, isn't it? Off there. Yes. That state has fundamentally two issues to address. How can it shift in terms of domestic use to more sustainable, reusable forms of energy? But then what does it do about the fact that actually a significant part of the state's economy is built on fossil fuels? Corey, one of the phrases which I learned this year was the fact that concern about the environment is is a privilege. It's a privilege of the middle class because they can afford to be concerned because those in the at the pinched bottom can't be concerned. They have too many other, let's say, immediate worries. Is that fair to say that it's the, the middle classes and people who have more disposable income that can campaign about climate change? No, I, I think it's more a case of middle class countries and rich countries as opposed to individuals because look the amount of bottles i put in the bottle bin the amount of uh, old newspapers that i put in a newspaper bin isn't going to make a blind bit of difference let's be honest me using a, a paper straw at mcdonald's isn't going to make any difference it's on a government level everybody knows that it's on a government level it's on it's down to the big polluters the big guys who's just talking about oil comp we're talking about the oil industry oil companies, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, I think it is a privilege of the middle class, but I don't think, not necessarily middle class individuals, I think it's a privilege and a responsibility of middle and rich countries. And I think there should be hardly any responsibility put on countries at the bottom end of the table because, but yeah, they don't have the, the privilege to concern themselves with what didn't concern the rich world 100 to 150 years ago to make the rich world rich. Not even 150 years ago. Um, exactly. Yeah. 30 years ago, 20 years ago. Izzy, thank you for bringing that story to our attention. Denise, who's Keith Lee? Why is he having an effect? Okay, so I'm obsessed with Keith Lee. Keith Lee 
is a former MMA fighter that got on TikTok in 2020. He did it initially to get over. He has some social anxiety and he thought he would get on TikTok and start shooting videos. And in 2021, he started reviewing restaurants, right? And basically, he would go to a city, he would go check out restaurants, and he would give them a review on his um, platform. Fast forward to today, this year, his impact has been absolutely phenomenal. He has well over 10 million followers. And why I think I'm obsessed with him is we talk a lot about the power of social media. But here is someone who took the same tools. We all have access to these same tools. And he used it so powerfully to change people's lives. He basically goes to businesses that are struggling, restaurants that are struggling, usually minority-owned or underfunded businesses. He goes in, he does a review, and a business that was in danger maybe two or three weeks from being closed all of a sudden has hundreds of people lined up around the block because Keith Lee said they were a great restaurant. And he doesn't take any money from the restaurants that he supports. He just shares his platform with them to give them a chance to be competitive and to survive. Why I picked it as my story of the year is because I hope that I can choose to do that. I hope that I can see this um, plethora of resources, of tools, whether it be social media, AI, you name whatever tool that's available to us in our time. And rather than sitting around and lamenting about all the ways it's deteriorating society, what am I prepared to do to use these tools to uplift and to help and to support? My story of the year was the Keith Lee effect. I must admit, it, it was all kind of new to me up until about 25 minutes ago when I had to do a quick Google. But Z, you, you're a bit of a fan of Keith Lee as well. So I'm glad somebody brought this up. I think he's just amazing. He lives here in Vegas. He's originally from Detroit, um, but he's lived here, I believe, for over 10 years. I started following Keith a long time ago. I think at the time he only had, I think, like 100, 200,000 followers on TikTok. Now he has 13.5 million um, which is amazing. But he's done so much justice for Black-owned restaurants specifically, but also all minority-owned restaurants and restaurants that are struggling out here, which is great. Because especially out here in Vegas, we have so much tourism, particularly with the Strip. And so a lot of these amazing restaurants, honestly, so good, like great quality food never get touched because everything is so concentrated on the strip, which is very like corporate, everything on the strip basically is corporate owned. Yeah, he's amazing. Love him. So Denise, tell us actually about his style of reviewing. What makes it so authentic and so endearing to millions of people throughout the world? I think that's the other thing I really love about Keith Lee. Like who is Keith Lee? He's just a guy. He doesn't have a culinary degree doesn't have a background in a restaurant business. He just knows what food he likes, goes in and shares his opinion. He takes, he, he now has had to take the food into his car to eat it because he's so recognizable and he doesn't want to um, be treated differently as a celebrity. He wants to really taste the food, taste it on camera. He gives his honest feedback, his honest review for so many businesses. It's absolutely transformative. And he was recently here in Houston. One of the businesses that he visited literally said she had a hundred X change in her business since Keith Lee came to visit. And I think there's something about this regular guy. I think that one of the biggest challenges of our time is that we are hero obsessed. We love to talk about Steve Jobs and Oprah Winfrey and LeBron James. We love a hero, right? But the truth of the matter is we all have the capacity to create impact if we choose to do. And so here is this guy who literally got on TikTok to fight social anxiety of all things. And not only did he get over that, <laughs> but he is just creating this incredible circular impact because not only does he point his considerable audience in the direction of these restaurants, he catalyzes people to go right? He gets me out of bed. 
He gets me out of it. He gets you out of bed to go and support that small business instead of going to a big chain that is has big corporate sponsorship. We all say we love small businesses, but when, when the rubber hits the road, do we support them? These businesses won't survive unless we feed and encourage and support them on a consistent basis. And I think the idea that this regular person has been able to take these ubiquitous tools and create this incredible impact is a real lesson for all of us. I love the fact that you've highlighted the champions, champions sorry, small business, because one of the things that chains do in our communities is actually take money out of our communities. Yes, they might give a certain amount of jobs to people in our communities, but those profits go outside of our communities, go to headquarters, wherever that is, then potentially they're giving out in, in, in share dividends. And I think it's one of the bad things about chains. Yes, they're convenient. There's a level of service, but they're not truly local. But also there's an economic effect of, of chains in, in our neighborhoods, which is absolutely bad. But I want to come back to something. And, I, and, I'll, and I'll also add to that, too. If there's an emotional impact, right? We all say we like entrepreneurship and we want to support. But when a rubber hits the road, we all go to Home Depot and Target, right? It's, if we want to truly support our economies and make them full and rich, and I would say fat, luscious, that we have to feed what we say we want to grow. And I think he does it in such a pure, simple way that it is, even in my household, my husband and I are so much more careful about going to small businesses now. And I can attribute that to Keith Lee. It's interesting to say about hardware, because in the Bay Area, there's a hardware chain, very small chain called Ace Hardware, and everybody goes there. Not to Home Depot or Depot, because I'm English, but they go to Ace Hardware because it's authentically of the Bay Area. And everybody that's in there is happy to be there working. You obviously know they treat their staff really well, which is another thing, not ubiquitously about small enterprises, but they have a real connection to the community that, that they serve. And that generally is reflected in service. But one thing which you did say is that everybody potentially has something they could project on, on social media, on TikTok. Tonya, if I'm going to put you on TikTok, what are you going to be TikToking about? That's a deal. I don't know. I've thought about this many a time and I don't know what to talk about. Yeah, I do have a TikTok account, by the way. Oh, okay. I, I think one time I went to the gym, I did some boxing and I videoed myself doing some boxing as a pugilist as I am. <laughs> mm -hmm. But it's just random snapshots of my life. One time I was cycling and another time I was probably dancing to the new year or whatever. But yeah, it's I, I it's nice to hear of someone use it so effectively. It's nice to hear of someone. I, I was just doing a quick read of Quick Keith Lee and I found out that he actually went into it because he wanted to combat his anxiety of public speaking. He's used a fear and channeled that to to touch so many people's lives and, and 10x or 100x people's businesses. So that's amazing. I don't know what I can specialize in or, or niche I can deliver on TikTok, but I am still looking forward to a time when I will find out. Corey, do you have a weakness, something like social anxiety, which you could turn into a superpower? Yes. Uh, uh, so I've got this thing like, mm -hmm. so I don't have PTSD. But I know there's a common thing amongst soldiers who have PTSD. They often have to sit. If they're in a room, any kind of crowded space, bar, restaurant, somebody's living room, they're always sat with their back towards walls or with their back towards... Essentially, where their field of view is... Their whole field of view covers everybody that might be coming towards them. And I've got that similar kind of thing where when I'm in open spaces, I like or any kind of space, I like having as much of my surroundings within my field of view as possible, especially when it comes to people. So I guess the superpower that would translate to is some sort of, yeah, 360 vision, eyes in the back of my head, eyes in the side of my head maybe too. Yeah. I, I Just for the record, I, I don't believe that I have any PTSD though. It's, I guess it's just a natural, a naturally occurring phenomenon that I feel the need to see everything around me. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. 
Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Denise. Why don't you have the last word? So Keith Lee's awesome. Have you eaten at a Keith Lee reviewed restaurant? I absolutely have, and I plan to do so in every city he goes to. There you go. Keith Lee is our story number two. Corey Bernard, I'm going to come to you. For you, it was the coronation of King Charles III. Why did this story resonate with you, my friend? Obviously. I guess one of the requirements of being on this podcast is you're constantly aware and up to date with things that are going on in the world. So I could have picked probably 10 different things that's happened over the last year, but that was actually the first thing that popped to mind. I thought if it's the first thing that popped to mind, it means that it's especially, it stands out especially. So the reason for that is, uh, there's a few reasons. First reason is, as I think I may have mentioned to you before, I'm a fan of monarchy. Um, and so there's, so there's that. So for any sort of, with anybody with even a, a, a passing interest in monarchy all the way up to absolute fanatics, that was one of the biggest events of the year, partly because it's uh, it's a crowning, <laughs> excuse the pun, point of monarchy, it's the actual crowning itself, and also because it's so unique, especially with our in terms of our recent history, and the fact that it's something that hasn't happened here for 72 years. And there's not that many things that you go 72 years without experiencing, seeing or hearing about or reading about or watching. So I think partly because it was such a unique event, uh, which a lot of people have never seen and the same people probably never see again. And also because I sing, I, I buy into the symbols. I buy into the mysticism of it all. I buy into the signs and the seals and the pomp and the meaning behind the pomp. So I buy into all of that. So I think, yeah, that that's certainly a highlight of my year just because it's a general interest, but also because I think when it, when I think about the country, I think that's what I think monarchies, I think monarchy is very important in terms of Britain's history. And so, yeah, so yeah, it's that, those are two, the two main reasons why that came to mind as one of the sort of more interesting things or impactful things that I would refer 2023 as having. Now I've said this on this podcast on, on many occasions, considering that I think I'm, relatively quite left i'm actually a monarchist too but i'm a sentimental monarchist i just think if this country has had this system of governance using air quotes from before it was a country just keep it there so keep them ceremoniously ceremonially there pat us on the head when we do good things we do good works it's nice to go down to buckingham palace and have the king or the queen pat you on the head and say you've done good works for the country I've got no problem with that. But fundamentally, they need to stay out of our way. Now, considering that we are a country in deep economic crisis, we are a country who is trying to figure out where it stands in the world, do you think that lavish ceremony portrayed Britain in a positive light in 2023? So two things. The, just to 
base cost of it. And I guess the second thing I would want to talk about is the sort of ideals. In terms of the just the base cost of it, if every penny that was spent on police and coronation and on all of the other expenses that went through to put in coronation on, obviously the net cost, because you'd have to factor in what it brought in. But let's just say, let's say it was a net cost to the, to the taxpayer, to the treasury of a few tens of millions of pounds. Some figures were bandied about of 250 million pounds, which uh, pretty spurious. But hey, let's say it was 200 million pounds. Now, what that, that, I think if I remember rightly, it's about a day and a half of NHS spending that was spent. That's the highest estimates. And that's gross. That's not net. So the highest estimates of the gross cost of the coronation cover about one and a half days of spending on the NHS. I think we have to look at things in perspective and not just think about just big numbers. But what do these big numbers mean in the machinery of state? And in the machinery of state, they're very small numbers. So that's the first thing I'd say to that. The second thing I'd say to is, I think some things are worth spending the money on. I think, and that's not to say that gives some sort of cover for government not to do what they should be doing with the rest of the money. Not at all. But I'm saying I think some things are worth spending money on. I think there are certain things. I think our, I think for most of human history, our ancestors value things that we don't necessarily value anymore. And that's the idea of sort of these centralizing figures, centralizing events, the shine, the pomp. Yeah, it's shiny stuff that most of us will never be able to touch, much less benefit from. But there's the, yeah, you could call it sentimental, you could call it naive, but there's the sort of ideals, the higher ideals, the, the shine. We were basic creatures and we like shiny stuff. And it brings about a sense of, I think, for some people, not for everybody, obviously, but for a lot of people, and I think for most of our ancestors, it just brings about the, the otherworldly nature of life that we don't usually focus on into focus for a short period of time. And so, yeah, those, those are two. Those are two. Two responses I have to the whole the question of how much is being spent. Number one, in the grand scheme of things, it's nothing. Yeah, to the individual person, tens of million pounds is life changing money. To a government, it's pocket change. And secondly, like I said, I think some things are worth spending money on, and I think things that appeal to our, our innermost sort of senses of ethereal beauty and pageantry and mysticism. I think these are things we should be spent money on. And maybe we can spend money on them more constructively, but I think they are things that should be have money spent on. So, yeah. We're a country which has had what, 13 years of austerity where the income divide is widening, record levels of homelessness, which we've just never seen before. We are becoming as fractious as the Americans. Culture wars are now starting to play a part in UK society. And then we had this middle-aged, forceless, elderly man in ermine, breeches, and stockings. Come on. He should, he should, he was, well, he wasn't in the proper breeches as he should have been because he wanted to be a bit more modern. But that aside, look, like I said, the net cost was probably somewhere around 50 to 100 million pounds. But the, the net cost... We wouldn't... The we would, cost, all right, the cost... How did it look? wouldn't make did any it difference. It wouldn't make... But it's... Forget about how, how things look. It's about how things are. What's the practical reality? Incredibly important. What's it's the practical... Important. What's the practical reality? The Corey, practical you're, reality. you're talking about mysticism and pomp and effort. No, no, let me... And how does no, that relate to practical reality of someone who doesn't have the money? The practical reality is this. If the government spent another £100 million tomorrow, added another £100 million to their, their annual expenditure, not one of us would notice or feel any benefit from that. And that's what I mean about the practical element of it. If you turn around and say the coronation costs £100 billion, yeah, that's different. Government adds £100 billion to spending. That's going to make a big difference to people's lives. Government adding £100 million is not going to make a jot of difference. Like I said, it's a couple of days worth of expenditure for the NHS. The NHS will get through that by the time... We're out, people are up for a drink on Saturday night. So that's what I mean about the practical reality of it. Because yeah, we get bogged down with how things look and how things feel. But what do things actually do, especially when it comes to money? Corey, my friend, there's somebody, again, and it feels like a total contradiction, who will see themselves as, as left-wing, as I do. I'm just like, I don't mind the bauble on top of the Christmas tree, which is the monarchy. As long as... Of course you don't. Look, and there's a reason long, for that. As long as it is fundamentally ceremonial and they make us feel good. And I also think there's an important point about having a head of state, which is above party politics. I think that's very important. And if it is part of the traditions of the state, 
they've always had their head of state created in that way. I don't have a problem with it. I don't have a problem with it. And this country was the most democratic country in all of Europe in the early 19th century, and it was a monarchy. So you, it feels like it's incompatible with a property-owning democracy and meritocracy and multi-ethnic society, but you can have a monarch that sits on top of all of that. He just floats above everything. Don't have a problem. However, this is a British perspective. Denise Hamilton. <laughs> no, I think that... I- I think maybe it's worth Denise Hamilton. Sorry. Her name's Corey Bernard. Sorry. I just completely missed that bit where you said Denise's name. Sorry. Last time I checked, you're a card holding American. However, you're also a Jamaican, and King Charles is the king of Jamaica, too. Where, 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 do, you, where, where do you sit with, let's say, let's deal with the, the Jamaican monarchy first? Where do you sit with that? <laughs> I am not a monarchist, I am not a fan of the concept. It's funny when Corey was talking about pomp and majesty and all of that, all I could think about was the Olympics and how incredible, like you do need these events that you focus everyone's attention to just to remind us what it means to be together and to be powerful and to be effective people. I do not associate that with the monarchy. It's uh, the idea to me of getting something because you were born in a particular family is just, it feels so archaic to me. It feels so archaic to me that it's really hard for me to wrap my my brain around spending that kind of money for it. That being said, I went to the inauguration of Barack Obama and I loved every single minute of it. So I think that people do need these galvanizing moments. I think the sheer expression of wealth that is a part of it, it just feels... It feels disconnected from the brutal reality that so many Brits are actually experiencing. And it feels insensitive. Over here on this side of the pond, we have our moments of grandeur, but nothing like what we saw <laughs> with the coronation. And it's always great to, to from the outside, to look in to criticize how someone else does something. So I take everything I say with a grain of salt. But as a Jamaican person... The idea of imperialism and monarchy has left a bad taste in my mouth. And I think people should be allowed to manage themselves and, and, and govern themselves. And so anything that's like a vestiture or like a, like an echo of that kind of imperialistic season is probably a little distasteful to me. Sorry, guys. But I'm going to slightly disagree with you in one regard, like, which means in large part, I hear what you're saying, sister, right? But let's say that the British government is going to apologize to the Caribbean for 400 years worth of colonialism, rape, pillage, etc. If that apology is delivered by the King of England, wouldn't it feel even more powerful? <laughs> sure. Okay. So there is a place for monarchy. There you go. There is a place for monarchy. Now, Z. <laughs> I, I know you're a card-holding Republican in a sense. You know, I know you're a Democrat. Did you see any of this ceremony on your TV? I didn't, but I have to say I'm beyond shocked to hear that we have monarchists on this on this podcast. You guys have shocked me. <laughs> it, it is a peculiar institution, and I think my tolerance of it is, number one, I am British, so I know that they hold no political power. It's our constitutional monarchy is called a constitutional monarchy. However, it's largely ceremonial. And some legal scholar can come and, and correct me here, but politics gets on and gets done. And what the monarch does is to write everything into law, sign everything into law. And the constitutional role of the monarch is to advise the prime minister. So the prime minister, again, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, Tonya and um, Corey, the prime minister goes to the monarch twice a week. I think it's Tuesdays and Thursdays, but just once. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Tonya. And basically says, this is what I'm up to. Every prime minister, 
when they resigned from power has actually said, this is a good thing because they're speaking to somebody who is non-political and actually the, the conversations are totally confidential. So you they have a gut check. They have somebody who they can actually speak quite freely to. Now, that monarch cannot turn around and say, you're not going to do this piece of legislation because there'll be a republic tomorrow. We'd, we'd boot them out. But to have somebody to confide in and to somebody who can encourage, I think that's actually a really wise thing. The fact that we put a crown on this person's head and we say that everything, all business of government is done in their name, that does feel weird. But ultimately, they don't get in the way of politics at all. But Z, go for it. No, I just think that's so interesting because I grew up in Australia and we have a parliamentary system, but we there's we don't run things like that. We have a monarchy. So I think I just I assume that all I guess like Brits under the age of a hundred were anti monarchy, but it's interesting to to see that there's some traditionalists out there. You know what? I think there's more than you'd realize. Though, and I'll come back to you, Corey, because you you brought this up. Republican sentiment has gone up in the year plus that the Queen has passed, hasn't it? The Guardian has always been a Republican newspaper, but articles about this anachronism at the heart of British society much more than you did before. Do you think we are seeing more articles about Republicanism because of the respect that everybody had for the late Queen? Or it's a case of we have this new monarch on the throne. It all feels a bit weird. It is a bit peculiar in a modern society to have somebody prancing around with a golden hat on their head in ermine and people are just saying, maybe we need to change. I don't think so. I think because, again, if you look at, if you take a more of a long view of history, you'll find pretty much at many different sort of points of tumult, there's the, the question of republicanism always raises its head. And I think we're just in a particular period now of unrest and uncertainty and yes change with the, with the queen diet so uh, again these polls republicanism still polls well under 50 percent just going back to what z was saying and to back up what you were saying there revealed yeah people would be surprised at how much at least tacit support people give to the institution of monarchy but yeah i, I don't think it's anything i think the sort of the republican narrative i think it's just it's of the moment and as i said taking a more long view of history it's not a new thing either. It's not recent. It, these sorts of conversations periodically pop up for as long as, I guess, we've had a press, which is, what, 300 years minimum, if you want to talk about more the press as we know it now, newspapers at least. Mm. Let us move on to our last of our four stories which have touched us. Tanya, my friend, the Titan submersible, it exploded whilst in the ocean deep trying to look at the wreckage of the Titanic. Why did you pick this as your most significant story of 2023? Yeah, thank you, Rafael. It actually imploded, not exploded, but imploded, which <laughs> which is a characteristic of things being under pressure in the, in the deep ocean where there's so much pressures acting upon a, a submersible like that. But like you say, I could have picked the Gaza conflict. There's the continuing events in Ukraine continuing war in Ukraine, there was the mysterious march towards Moscow by Wagner boss Prigozhin and the mysterious march back down from Moscow and the turning around of his men and then his mysterious death when he died from a helicopter that crashed in, in Russia. And that could also be the, a topic that it could be Suela and her debacle of how she's handled the entire um, migrant crisis and how we have much more immigration in this country than, the, than even when we're in the European Union one of the key reasons for why we wanted to leave the European Union. And you could, we could have talked about Ray, Wayne Rooney being Birmingham City's new manager. We could have talked about Wayne Rooney being... Which has was, been a disaster, by the way. It yeah. has been an utter disaster. We, we're talking about the Titan submersible that imploded. Not exploded, imploded, my friend. Tell us the reason why it moved you and why it's important that we remember it. Absolutely. Uh, there were three reasons why it moved me. One, because I'm an engineer and I, I am working every day in a very safety conscious environment and I know what it means and the importance of things to be safe and the kind of precautions we take. 
Two, because of the relationship with politics that I think it has. The hubris and the arrogance shown by the CEO of this of the submersible Titan, disregarding industry expertise, taking risky and unnecessary chances, and just the out of the third one is just the out of touchness of, of wealthy people in, in society today, and especially the CEO of this organization. There's this there's this setting mentality about being a disruptor. And the being a disruptor, everyone wants to be a disruptor now. And they're absolutely violating the laws of physics, wanting to be a disruptor. This is, and when I talk about the relatedness to politics here, I think about people like Liz Truss. And there are many, I could call it a thousand, a ton of people, but I want to focus on Liz Truss a little bit. Now she's just wanted to be a disruptor with her economic mini budgets, her economic plans for this country, and how she avoided and disregarded the laws of economics as well. The laws of how the market works, just completely disregarding experts. You had the same thing with this Titan Submersible. You had design flaws all the way through. You had industry expert, experts calling and reporting to, to, to regulators and saying that this was not right, but they were all disregarded. Again, with Ms. Truss, she fired up. She didn't heed any warnings about her fantasy economics. She fired the boss, the top treasury official, when she took the job. Tanya, I love the link, but she was 2022, my friend. She's gone. She indeed was 2022, but I, and I think the mentality sets in. The mentality in we have seen. You know what I do like about what you've said is concerns about safety. If we were to listen more to our American friends, but let's say to entrepreneurs, they always rail against red tape, don't they? And say that it cuts back on innovation and business should be fleet of foot. Ocean Gate executives hadn't sought certification for Titan, had they? And they argued that excessive safety protocols hindered innovation. And what it did was to kill those people on there. So it it shows that regulation, government, industry standards and adhering to them are an incredible component to keep us safe when we're out there in the world and we're putting our trust in business. Yeah. Absolutely. It shows, it absolutely just, we need to, and people in top leadership positions need to understand the reasons why we have certain, certain um, security safeguards in place. Understanding those reasons means you are able to utilize them to, to achieve things, but disregarding them completely and not showing any um, awareness of the reason why they are there is just completely disregarding observable reality. We have learned from the past and that's why we have said some of these things, talking about you just talked about the regulations and the certifications that they didn't have. There was a point where the the um, um, Stockton Rush, the CEO of, of OceanGate, asked his head of finance and admin to become the chief pilot of the sub, of the submersible because they couldn't find anyone to take the risk. The guys who they had employed were all warning that the risk was too much. You hadn't tested for certain things. And they all disregarded those tests. They wanted to go on with the expedition. And so he had to ask someone with an accounting background a lady with an accounting background, to be the chief pilot. And she completely declined because she was shocked by such a request. Again, it's just that same mentality of not understanding the reasons why we have institutions in place, safeguarding ourselves. And and I could, again, pinpoint that to the likes of Suela and the European Court of Human Rights and the European Court of Justice and all of these things that we have that have avoided catastrophe from happening again since the 1939 45 and people not understanding or appreciating the reasons for them being in place. Uh, Z, how did you feel uh, about this story? Was this a rich person's hubris? Was this corporate business playing fast and loose with the rules? Yeah, I think this is one of the honestly most ironic stories of the year, to to be honest. Um, There's so many things, right? The loose corporate laws that they're able to get around. I think it was a... a a testimony to just corporations with an ungodly amount of money being able to do whatever they want, regardless of safety precautions. Um, But also the type of folks that chose to purchase from this business, right? Like we're talking about, these are multimillionaires and billionaires. This is, there's no average person that is going to be able to afford a seat going down on a submarine to see the Titanic. The guy that was running this thing was Basically, it was like Phil Dunphy from Modern Family, like just completely clueless. You could tell the guy had no idea what he was talking about. And yet these people, so out of touch with reality, were just willing to just go in and trust him. And it's a sad story because obviously one of 
the people that died was a kid. And that kid was honestly the, the most scared and the smartest person that was in that situation. But it just goes to show how one out of touch rich people are and two, the disconnect that there is and these loose corporate laws. Denise, I'm somebody, I don't mind taking the odd little risk in business, the little risk. Shall I, shall I launch a new podcast? It's about as risky as things get with me. I have a fear of heights, which I've developed in the last 10 years. As a little kid, fearless. Now you get me up a pair of ladders, I feel all woozy. I'm properly risk averse physically. What's the scariest, riskiest thing that you did in 2023, Denise? Oh, my goodness. That would be a very short list. Royfield, I am a surface dweller. I don't go too high up and I don't go too low down. <laughs> I, I don't know that there's a ton. The riskiest thing I did was write a book. I am not a, a physical risk, bungee jumping daredevil. But I do, I am tickled. And, and it was. I think this whole story was very interesting about understanding the psyche of people who are like, we have developed a upper class that is bored. They want to go to Mars. They want to go to the bottom of the ocean. And it's, I would do anything for them to turn some of that curiosity and some of that interest into solving some of the world's problems. But instead, their interest and their intention goes to activities like this. And there's a line from Jurassic Park where Mr. Hammond says, how can we stand in the path of discovery? And the character responds and says, what you call discovery, I call the rape of the natural world. And I think that I really appreciate what Tony was saying earlier about the fact that these safeguards are in place for a reason. And we've made the entertainment of breaking rules of like the famous move fast and break things of Facebook. I think that this time... We got to see it in, in full relief. We got to see it in a catastrophized format. But the truth is, these guys are running around breaking things all the time. There's lots of little mini implosions that are happening all over our society because entertainment and the dalliances of the wealthy. And so I thought it was interesting to see, for once, an actual consequence for this, what I would call a perpetual hubris around what moving into the future looks. And my hope is that the same people that are not in charge of AI are not the same kinds of people that were in charge of this submersible. But I'm not sure I'm, I'm right to be <laughs> optimistic about that. Corey, I'm going to end up with you. Obviously, they were on that submersible to uh, look at the wreck of the Titanic. Kate Winslet. Leonardo DiCaprio, who gave the best performance in that movie? Oh, I'm, I'm thinking. I've got two people. But I'm trying to decide who's the best. Oh, it's none of those two, by the way. Who gave the standout performance then? I would say Rose's mom's friend. Yes. Now, I don't remember her names, but Rose's mom's friend. Why? What was it about the performance of Rose's mom's friend, which is so gripped to you some 20 odd years later? So she was clearly new money. So I don't, if, if anybody remembers the film, she was the friend with the, the massive head of hair, red hair, who was always hanging around with Rose's friend. They were at the, the posh dinners together. And she was just so down to earth because she was new money. She wasn't part of the... She had the money of all of the people she was surrounded with, like the Astors who were referenced and Carl, the guy who she was supposed to get married and all these people who had all the money. They were all old money. She had their money, but she had that sort of, I don't want to say working class, but... Because I'm sure she, she <laughs> that, yeah, categories then. But she had that sort of regular person's demeanor, said what she thought, said what everybody else was too afraid to say. So yeah, I just liked how she, she straddled both worlds. She didn't have, she had first class money with regular people's manners. Talking about new money. Boy, is anybody here watching The Gilded Age or has watched this j just wrapped up? I have. And I thank you for reminding me that I need to now binge the series that I didn't know had just come out. I, you know what? I love that show. And I love the first series. Denise, Z, I know you pair of you are card-holding communists and you don't want to see any level of wealth and whatever displayed on your TV screens because you're yeah, evolution rich to the quill. But I love it. And I love the dresses. 
it's the late Victorian period. It is Manhattan. They live just by Central Park. And it is this weird mishmash world of the early 20th century, as we understand it, electricity come to New York, the opening of the Brooklyn Bridge. But then slavery's only ascended, what, some 30 years beforehand. And these people are so rich and they have all of these servants. There's no appliances as we understand it, but it's the start of moving images. They go to a flickering light show, a magic lantern show. I love it. And then, Z, you'll love this, Labour Relations. Woof, season two, Z. Right. One of the uh, protagonists is a rail baron. So he's a proper robber baron. And he has this labour dispute in Pittsburgh and he has to go to Pittsburgh to deal with the strikers. And he has the army turn up and they're going to shoot the strikers. It is a wild time, I'm telling you. And then, of course, everyone's so genteel and and full of, full of manners. What's it on? Is it on Netflix? Uh, I'm watching it on an illegal VPN place, don't ask me. Uh, no, I think it's Scotland. Yeah. I have to watch it. That sounds like something I would absolutely love. Yeah, know. that's not interesting. It's Downton Abbey, the American version, isn't it? It's written by the same dude. It's written by the same dude. It's the same period chronologically, but just in the States. So you I get like all that. these nuanced differences. And yeah, I love it. And mm. the costumes. Boom. A lot of boom from me. And on that note, everybody, it's time for us to say goodbye. It's very quickly, Denise Hamilton, my good friend. Tell us about your book and, and what you've been up to over the Christmas period. I have been consciously working on having the most uneventful Christmas one can have. I've been resting, relaxing, rejuvenating. My book, Indivisible, is coming out February 6th. And I am incredibly excited. And so I've been working out and eating well and lounging about and preparing myself mentally for what's going to be an incredible year. So hopefully people will follow up and track me down. I'm at official DHAM in all of the places that one might want to look. Tanya, was it turkey with all the trimmings at Christmas for you? Yeah, it was a little bit of turkey. I spent some time with a nice friend who invited me over for dinner with her family so that was really good some nice turkey and pork yeah but i've also been doing some gym going to the pool yeah i've had a nice relaxing and peaceful time i was like going through your instagram i'm sure was it your instagram it's like you I'm kind of bar. i was like where are man's in shape <laughs> thank you very much thank you <laughs> a, certain, a certain amount of envy from this 55-year-old nabby uh, gray old man o- o- over here, my friend. If people can want to catch up with you on the socials, how do they do that? Twitter's the best place, and I think I know my username now this time. It's at AltradeTheGreat, so A-L-T-R-E. Wow, the great. Great, yeah. What, what concrete have you done to deserve that? Super. Uh, the concrete is to come. <laughs> Corey, my friend, what? A, how was your Christmas? It was alright, it wasn't too bad. Put to shame a little bit by by, by Denise and Tanya. They seemed like they were productively restful, whilst I was just restful. Uh, I've not been doing much about eating and leftovers and into pies and sorrel and screen time. Yeah, but in, overall, it, was, it has been and it is decent. Obviously, season's not over yet, but yeah. You know when you say restful, you mean you're just bonarly lazy? Basically. Just like you have one of them big turkey bellies now, do you? Boxing Day must be the most unproductive day I have for the next year. That's how unproductive it was. Can't come shame myself again. Respect to that. Year. Did you fall asleep in front of some classic movie with a chick, a like, turkey sandwich, literally resting on your belly? That type of thing. No, I no, I did. I did try and watch some classic, but not from the regular TV because you can't trust the TV anymore. You got to make your own TV. Combination of Netflix and Apple TV. Yeah, I whipped out uh, Lord of the Rings: Return of the King, Die Hard because Die Hard is a Christmas movie. Don't care what anybody says. And this is the one I don't watch, I've not watched Home Alone yet. I've, that's on my list. So I'll be whipping out Home Alone at some point over the next four days, watching one of those because you know things you have to watch around this time of year. Apart from that, it was EastEnders and and The King. Wow, 
Here you go. Can't get more festive in the UK than watching EastEnders or curry on Christmas Day. Oh, yeah. Props to that, my, my British friend. And on that note, I'm going to bid you adieu from me. And I have returned team. to Twitter, by the way. Oh, yeah. Oh, God, go on. Then. I have returned. And, and, this, and I do remember my name. Like Tonya, I also remember it now. 168 Polybath. I've returned to the cesspit. Wow. You born in 1968? No, one six eight. There's 168 hours in a week. Oh, sorry. Yeah, you go. Sorry. There you go. I'm gonna say Tarara bit au revoir. Alfida saying and all of them tings to you, good listener. 2023's been quite the year, and hopefully, gleam some insights and some of the major stories that affected us as human beings in the last year on this episode of Murder and Denise Hamilton, Tarara, Corey, Bernard, Toodlepip, and to you, Tanya Oldtrade more time my brother take care everyone bye bye planning for your next trip elevate your travel style with quince quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway like european linen premium luggage options buttery soft italian leather bags and so much more and it's all priced at 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands plus quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.